Hello and welcome to True to the Bible podcast with Hunter Davis. Thanks for joining us for this lesson in our series, Who I Am, where we'll be studying the book of John and where we see that John is writing these things to everyone so they might believe and that in believing they might have life. In this awesome book where John presents the Messiah Jesus as God, we'll see lots of key truths and great application that we can apply to our own life. Well, thanks again for joining us. We hope that you enjoy this lesson. All right, well, I'm really excited because uh, it's been a long time since I, we've gone through a book of the Bible and I've been able to get up here and teach, and I'm, I've been missing it a lot. And so I'm excited today uh, to go through um, John. That's what we're going to be starting. We're calling the series Who, An- or Who I Am um, because as we look at the book of John, we're going to see who Jesus is and also, we'll get it. We'll talk about it in a little bit. But um, he has some I am statements uh, throughout the book, not just the seven I am statements, but he has more than that. So we're going to look at those uh, throughout the time. And I'm really excited to go through it. I love the book of John as I've been reading it. Today, we're going to do an intro to John, and the goal is that we would we it would help us to be approved by God. And what I mean by that, Second Timothy two fifteen says, study or be diligent to be approved by God. Okay, so it's saying. Uh, a workman that needs not to be shamed rightly or accurately handling the word of truth. So talking about the word of truth is talking about the scripture. It's talking about being approved by God with the scriptures. And so uh, we want to do that. And today in our introduction, uh, we're going to get some stuff that will help us study John better. Okay, um, We're not going to start in verse 1 today. We're actually going to be looking in chapter 20 for just a little bit today. Uh, but it's going to be a little bit different in that way. It's going to be good. I'm excited for it. So uh, I did forget we have handouts. So regional handouts out. Um, we have handouts again so if you guys want those you guys can keep notes and you can use those in Jeopardy and there will be a lot of facts from this lesson in our Jeopardy thing uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks so don't uh, forget about that so turn your Bibles if you have them to John chapter 20 John chapter 20 and we're going to be looking at verse 30 and 31 like I said we're going to go back over this eventually when we get back to it But this is where John talks about the reason that he's writing. And so we're going to go through that, and then we're going to talk about some things, uh, some textual uh, criticism, uh, variance, archaeology evidence, uh, and then we'll get back into the themes. And then at the very end, we'll talk about the purpose, which is in these two verses. So it all kind of comes together in that way. Um, So today we're going to look at all of that. Uh, So John chapter 20, verse 30 says, Therefore... Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, or of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. All right, let's pray and then we'll dig into it. Dear God, we just come before you. We thank you for this time that you've given to us, and we thank you for your word and how perfect and true it is, God. And we thank you that... uh, You've given us evidence, God, of the uh, accuracy of your word. And we just thank you that we can go back and we can look at it and we can say, man, this is, this is accurate and it's true. Um, and you give us that, that evidence, God, despite um, knowing that it's your word and knowing that it's true. We also have evidence. So we thank you for that. We thank you for the book of John and just how uh, clear it is and how um, clear his message is and his purpose and so that we can study it together. Uh, we love you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so like I said, today we're, we're doing something a little bit different. I'm kind of excited about it. Uh, we're going to talk about the New Testament as a whole and then John. And the New Testament is 
the most accurate, and I can say this statement uh, with a lot of confidence, the New Testament is the most accurate historical document that we have today, uh, by far. And I'm not just saying that because like, I believe in Jesus or I believe in the Bible. Like, If you go back and you take the, the Scripture, and we're going to look at it in a second, uh, as a, just a document, and a factual document, it's actually the most accurate historical factual document that we have in our possession today. Um, and so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at uh, it's. I've, I labeled it textual criticism. This is number one on your sheet. I label it textual criticism uh, because we're going to look at the text. We're going to look at the manuscripts, and we're going to look at some variants as well. Uh, we're going to look at the New Testament as a whole, and then we're going to narrow it down to John a little bit and show how John is accurate, actually a very accurate book. Okay. As we go through these things, I have this article uh, that I recommend. I recommend it because it's a short article, and you can scan that QR code with the phone if you want, or you can get me later and I can send it to you or whatever. But this is an article uh, that doesn't go like, it goes deep, but it's not like crazy. It's not like you have to read like 500 pages to get good information. It's like a couple pages long, and it's got a lot of really good information on manuscripts, variants, and different things. And we're going to talk about it today, but there's, there's a lot more in this. Um, another thing that I recommend if you guys... and. Uh, as we get through it, you'll understand. As we start going through it, you'll understand what I'm talking about. But another thing I recommend is The Case for Christ. It's a book. I don't recommend the movie. The movie stinks. The book is really, really good. And all of it's on the accuracy of the Scripture. It's all on the accuracy of the New Testament. This article, that book, and it's coming from a perspective that is not necessarily biblical. Okay, So it's not like they come in and say, hey, we're believers and we know the Bible is true. Here it is. We believe the Bible is true because it's the Bible and you have faith. Um, both these things are kind of coming from a worldly perspective, saying, is the Bible accurate compared to other manuscripts, compared to other documents, compared to history that we know? Is it accurate? Um, and so those are really good things to read. This one is done by believers. Um, the case for Christ is actually started by an unbeliever. By the time he was done, he was a believer, okay, because of all the evidence that he found. So that, that's a really cool book to read. Um, I've read that a couple times, and it's it's really good. And they also have it on audio, so you can listen to it on Audible if you want. All right, so without further ado, that's awesome. Just some stuff, resources for you guys. Uh, but today we're going to be, uh, like I said, talking about a lot of this. this manuscripts is where we're going to start. Um, so what is a manuscript? So manuscripts are pieces or parts or an entire writing uh, from the ancient past. Okay, So these partial or complete writings, they give us the history that we know today. Okay, this is how we know history. Now, archaeology gives us history as well. We're going to talk about archaeology too today. Um, but this gives us the actual, hey, what happened? So we know what we know about Plato, Aristotle, the Gallic Wars, Rome. I mean, we know about these things because of manuscripts. Okay, And so the reason that's important is because what happened in the New Testament was ancient history, right? And so we know what we know about Jesus because of ancient manuscripts. Okay, and it's important as we look in through John, we want to say, hey, is John an accurate book? Is it a factual book? Uh, and it is, and we're going to see it. So these are based manuscripts. The evidence of manuscripts and ancient writings are based on three main things. Copies, gaps, and other writings. The first two we're going to talk a lot about today. The third one, um, we'll, I'll mention it, and I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you some stuff about it, but it, we're not going to go as in-depth with it. So when we're talking about copies, um, <clears throat> copies are the number of copies that there are and the accuracy that those copies have. So like, if you have an ancient writing, um, you're, you're not going to have the original document, okay? For the most part, as a whole. I mean, we don't have, if you get far enough back, we don't have any ancient documents of anything. So if you get back to New Testament or Plato or Aristotle, 
or um, you know Homer, the Odyssey, you know that kind of stuff. You don't have the original copies there, and so what we have to do is we have to look at the rewritten copies, okay, of those things, and see how many of them we have, and then how accurate they are. So like if I found a copy of John that was written in the 1500s, and I found a copy that was written in 600 AD, do they match? That's accuracy, right? And so the accuracy of copies and the number of copies matter when you're talking about ancient manuscripts, okay? <clears throat> and this is not Bible talk. This is, just, this is just how we do, as a people, how we, how we get history, okay? The gap. The gap is the, the number of years between the original writing and the first copy we have. Like I said, we don't really have originals, right? So, like, if Plato wrote in, what, 300 B.C., somewhere in there, like 300, 400 B.C., uh, what's his earliest copy that we have of Plato? And the gap there makes a difference because the closer you are, the smaller that gap is, the more accurate it's going to be, right? Because the less we, we have lost, and so the better it is if the smaller the gap. And then other writings are just what other ancient writings um, mention Plato or Plato's, you know, stuff or, or Aristotle or Jesus, you know, Josephus talks about Jesus a lot, so that's another ancient writing that, you know, talks about Jesus. So those are that's another thing that um, that people look at. Okay, so those are the three things in, uh, when talking about ancient writings. Do all those things make sense for the most part? Okay, so now we're going to look. Okay, we're, we have three of the most popular, or well, four of the most popular ancient works that we have. I mean, maybe not the top four or whatever, but we're going to look at the accuracy and the factual evidence for these things and say, hey, which one of these are, are good? Are all of them good? And we already know that Plato, Aristotle, and Homer are taken by pretty much everyone as fairly accurate documents, okay? Um, I mean, we don't, we don't say there was no Aristotle, right? I mean, nobody says that, and it's because of this evidence that we're going to show you. Uh, and we don't say there was no Plato, and it's because of the evidence we're about to show you. Um, but I think this evidence might... Uh, might surprise you just a little bit. So, let's look at it. Plato, the number of copies that we have of Plato are seven. There's seven copies that we have of Plato's works, <clears throat> partial or complete or whatever, uh, which is pretty decent. Okay, It's not great, uh, as you'll see, compared to Aristotle and Homer. Um, it's not like, it's not the best ever, uh, but it's pretty good. And the gap between him, uh, his years, or his manuscript, which is written, they think, in like what? 300 to 400 BC or whatever is 1,200 years. So it's 1,200 years from the earliest copy that we currently have to when Plato actually wrote. Okay, which is like that's like I mean it's not it's good for ancient writings, but for good ancient writings it's like okay if that makes sense. Uh, and then he does have other writings and everything. So like I said, we're not going to get I'm not the other writing thing. I could like go through and like list other writings that mention, but it's like like pointless. They all have other writings that mention them. Because these are all top tier, okay? Aristotle, he is a top tier as far as copies go. Okay, he has 49 copies, so way more than Plato that we have of Aristotle. So it's really good. So, like, when you're thinking of accuracy here, it's like Aristotle, like, like if those manuscripts are fairly accurate, which they're, I mean, they're fairly accurate compared to one another, 49 copies is really good. And so, no, you don't have to. You don't have to write it down. Uh, you can if you want to. Or you, I can send you this slide later, so... Uh, and then the gap between his is 1,400 years, which isn't great, uh, especially considering Plato has him at 1,200 years. But it's not bad. So Aristotle is considered a highly accurate document, highly accurate uh, in his writings and things um, for him. And then Homer. Okay, Homer's the best we have. Okay, it's the best we have as far as ancient writings go. 643 copies. 
and the accuracy level between those copies is 95%. Okay, 95%, which is really, really good uh, for an ancient writing. So we have a ton of copies from Homer, and his gap is only 500 years. Okay, so there's only 500 years between when Homer wrote and then when we have his earliest copy. Okay, so Homer's really good. That's like the Odyssey, right? The, I mean, that's what they What? Oh, man. Is he, like, I can't remember. way older than Plato and No. No. Yeah, these are all ancient writings. So they're all right around that AD zero kind of-ish. I mean, within... I mean, Plato's yeah. 300 years before or whatever, but... Uh, so that's pretty good for Homer there. Uh, yeah, I, I'll have to look that up. I can't remember. But he's is really good. And Homer, by most, like, scholars, like, ancient text scholars, Homer's like... I mean, they're all like Homer, like, best, right? The best we have. Like, most copies, most accurate. Like, he's really good. Uh, and then Jesus, or the New Testament. Okay, the writings about Jesus. Okay, this is in 2013. When did he live? He was born in 928 B.C. 928 B.C., so he would have... Like, thousands. Yeah, yeah, he would have been even before Plato, right? And he has that many copies. Okay, so Jesus, okay? This is in 2013. Right now there's actually about 6,000. This is 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 6,000, almost 6,000 now in 2020. In fact, they found some, which I'm not going to really talk about because they haven't like released the dates or anything. I was talking to Evan about this yesterday, but like uh, they found some, they think, first century Egyptian scrolls from the New Testament, which would date to like, I mean, almost like when they were written, which is crazy. So it's like um, right when... Zero to... 100? 99. So, like, if they wrote in, like, 70 AD, I mean, it's, like, I mean, those are almost original documents. Right. Um, <clears throat> so then there's also, so there's almost 6,000 Greek manuscripts at this point. There's almost 25,000 other language documents, okay? So, and the, and the accuracy between all of those, which is crazy, is 99.5%. So pretty much 100%. Pretty much 100%. How many manuscripts did you say? Total? Total. Uh, there's over 30,000. It's now, actually, in 2020, I think it's like 31, 32,000, somewhere in there. These are 2013s. All of these are 2013 stats. Uh, but like I said, I mean, they're discovering stuff all the time. Uh, in 2014, I think, is when that Egyptian, and I don't know if they've released, like, how old it is and stuff, but when they found those Egyptian scrolls that they think were, like, first century. It takes a long time to, like, you know, do all this stuff. So, um, so that's uh, there. And then the gap. Okay, the gap is 35 to 40 years. Okay, we're going to talk about John, uh, but there's a the fragment of John that we found that has matched up with the rest of John and been accurate, uh, that they found that dates to about 125 A.D. Okay, some scholars think John wrote in 90 A.D. Uh, I prefer to put it back before 70, but either way, I mean, you're, you're looking at, I mean, 30, 50, 30 to 50 years for these uh, documents. So... The New Testament far outweighs any other ancient document, okay? And as we're going through John, I think this is important because we want to know that John is accurate, okay? And he is. He's very accurate. Um, and not only by just biblical standards, he's also accurate by worldly standards, okay? Here's, a, uh, here's some of John's notable manuscripts. Um, the John uh, Raylands, that's the one that everybody... Like, it's like really popular. Everybody knows about it because it's the earliest, before these Egyptian ones, which I don't know if they've come out with dates or not, but it was the earliest New Testament fragment we have. Dates back to 125 AD. Okay, so that's really, really early. And when they find this, I was talking to Evan. The reason this is important is because we have all these documents, like, 
And you can open up your Bible today or whatever in the Greek, and you can look at that and say, hey, does this one from 125 AD, this fragment match what we have today? And it does. And when it does, you're like, wow, this is preserved through all the years. There's no gaps. There's no laps in it. So then you have a couple other really early ones from John. He's, John has a lot of early manuscripts. Okay, so it's actually one of the most accurate, just from a worldly perspective, one of the most accurate New Testament books. Um, so it's really cool when you look at it, I think. So like I said, there's no gaps, there's no laps. I was talking to some Mormons the other day at Boomer, not yesterday. Uh, but they were doing what we were doing at Boomer yesterday. And so uh, they stopped us and talked to us a little bit. And we got to talking about the, the scripture, uh, which they called, the, they said, can we share some scripture with you? And they turned, opened their Book of Mormon. And they're like, you know, we want to share with you from the Book of Mormon. I'm like, well, you know, do you believe in the scripture? And they said, well, yeah, we believe in the scripture, but there's a lot of gaps in it. And there's a lot of time lapses in it. And so it's not actually accurate anymore because we don't actually have the originals. Like, it's not even close to what it was when we wrote it. Okay, well, that's a bunch of baloney. Okay, if that's, if they think that, then they, none of the history we have of any of the world can be accurate. Because the New Testament is the most accurate historical document that we have. And just from the number of copies and the gaps of years that we have from it, it has to be the most accurate book. Even if you don't believe like Jesus is God, and you don't believe in Him as a Savior and a Messiah, like it has to be the most accurate book there is because of the evidence that there is. And so you talk to people like that that say, hey, it's, is there's gaps and there's laps in it. No, there's not. Um, there's not. And so I think that's really cool. And I think it's really important for us to know uh, for our confidence-wise. And I think it's also really important for us to even be able to explain that to people because we'll come across people and they'll say, well, Bible, you can't trust the Bible. It's, it's not accurate because there's gaps. There's laps in time. You know, we didn't get the real, we don't have the real thing. We don't have the original. You know, and they'll say that. And so it's just not... Those things aren't true. Um, and then they'll say, well, aren't there variants, right? And so let's talk a little bit about variants, okay? Because there are variants. There are variants in all of, those, um, all of those ancient documents, right? There's variants. In fact, Homer's 95% accurate, right? <clears throat> and when we're talking about accuracy, okay, we are not talking about every word being spelled the exact same, okay, or things like that. We're talking about the document's uh, meanings. Are they the same and stuff like that? And so... I've, I've looked a lot into this in the scripture because I think it's really important, but you'd be very surprised to see how accurate the Bible is. There are no doctrinal or theology variants that I can find in the scripture at all. Okay, There are no doctrine or theology or meaning changes in the Bible that I can find at all. Okay, Most of the variants, nine, actually 99% of the variants, are misspelled words. Or not even misspelled or change spelling. So, for example, in John, the biggest variant in John is the way they spell his name. Okay, because a lot of uh, writers put two N's in John, J-O-H-N-N, basically, uh, and then a lot of other ones just do one N. So that's a huge variant in John. It's like, okay, who cares, right? That doesn't really matter. Uh, another big one is word order. Okay, word orders might be changed. Um, Jesus Christ instead of Christ Jesus. That's a big one, um, or things like that. And Again, that's even less important when you know Greek, because in Greek there is no word order. Okay, word order doesn't matter in Greek. I know that sounds really weird, but like we get our uh, grammar from word order. So we're like the man hit the ball. Well, the man is the subject because of where it is in the sentence. But in Greek, you get the subject of the sentence based on like the ending of the word. So like the subject could be at the very end, 
of the sentence. It doesn't matter where it is because the ending, you know what I'm saying? So like, order doesn't, it doesn't matter as much in Greek, so it's really, you know what I mean? That, those kind of variants, they don't matter at all. And they wouldn't matter even if it did matter because like, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, right? It's not changing the meaning of the sentence at all. So that can, that's 99% of all variants in the scripture. There are other variants. We're going to talk about two in John because we're talking about John, okay? These are the two biggest textual variants in John, and actually the second one is probably the biggest probably the biggest textual variants in the, in the New Testament. Okay, so we're going to look at them. Okay, this first one is in John 5, 3 through 4. You can turn there if you want, or um, we can just look at it up here. This is a really, I don't know what version I copied. I think I copied like King James or something because it's really hard to read and I didn't realize it until later. Uh, but basically, this is John 5, not basically, this is John 5, 3 through 4. It says, In these lay great multitude of impotent folk, and blind. So basically saying all the people that are like can't walk, can't see, uh, you know, can't hear, all these people were by the pool. And then some of the manuscripts don't have this highlighted portion. Okay, it says, waiting for the moving of the water or the stirring of the water, for an angel uh, went down at a certain season to the pool and troubled or stirred the water. Whoever was first in the stirring of the water stepped in and was made whole from his disease. So we're going to talk a lot about this when we actually get to John chapter 5. We don't know if John's saying this is a legend or if this is something that actually happened uh, or whatever. But this last portion is not in some of the manuscripts. Okay? Here's the deal. It doesn't even matter. Right? Especially since if you keep going on, the, uh, the man that Jesus healed, this is healing at Bethesda. Okay? So the man that Jesus healed says that he couldn't get in when the water was stirred. So it's just like they left out a sentence. You know what I mean? So the variant doesn't doesn't change anything. It doesn't change any meanings. It doesn't change any of that stuff. Does that make sense? So that's really, I think that's really cool because, again, it shows the accuracy of the Bible uh, more than it shows the inaccuracy of the Bible. The other one is uh, John 7, 59 through 8, 11. Again, this is one of the biggest like textual variants in the Bible. Okay, It's the omission of the woman caught in adultery. Okay, So the woman, this is where the, where the woman gets caught in adultery and all the uh, leaders come in and they say, "Hey Jesus, should we? What should we do with this lady caught in adultery?" And he's down drawing in the sand, and he says, "Let the first, let uh, those of you who have not sinned be the first to throw the stone." And they all walk away. Uh, so again, we'll get to that. But some of the manuscripts don't don't have that section in there. Okay, but again, it doesn't change anything. And also, 900 out of the 925 manuscripts have it in there. So it's like, to me, it's like, yeah, it's part of scripture. It's in there. 25 of them left it out. Uh, it's not it's not a big deal at all, um, especially considering all things, and especially considering that it doesn't change any meanings or any theology or any flow or anything like that at all. Okay, does that make sense to you guys? So the, these are the huge variants that people talk about in the Bible. There's one in uh, Galatians. It says uh, one of them say the uh, fruit of the spirit, and the other one says the fruit of the light. And it's like that's like this huge variant that people get all upset about. It's like, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really change anything. Fruit of the Spirit, fruit of the light, right? It doesn't really change, change anything there. But that's like one of the biggest variants that we have in the Bible. And so the reason I want to share these with you is because the variants, to me, prove more that the Bible is accurate than it is inaccurate. Okay, Especially when you look at other ancient documents and all the inaccuracies they have. Um, and that people blow over those. It's not a big deal. Like, if, part of, if some of the Odyssey, like, left out like a little section like in 25 of the manuscripts like, I mean that's not 
it's not really that big of a deal, right? Especially if it doesn't change the meaning of anything. But in the Bible, it's a big deal. Like, it's a big deal. We better watch out because that makes the Bible inaccurate, right? It makes the Bible wrong. Uh, it's just not true. So that's some of the textual criticism, textual variance, and things that uh, I think prove that John is one of the most accurate books in the Bible. Okay? The other thing we want to look at, we're going to look at it briefly, don't worry, is archaeology evidence. Okay? There's a ton of archaeology evidence, and the reason that archaeology evidence is important to, um, to any ancient document is because if you're like, if you write about something, okay, and you find it in this Old Testament manuscript or whatever, or this old manuscript, and it's, it's non-existent, like they say, you know, there's this whatever, and it's non-existent, you can't ever find it in archaeology, it's like, okay, that's a little suspect. But like, if you write about something, and then archaeology discovers that same thing, then that, that proves that your uh, content is true and factual. Okay, so archaeology is really important. We're just going to look at three things in the book of John specifically uh, that have been found that uh, really enhance his factual uh, accuracy. Okay, the first one is the Pool of Bethesda again. Okay, the Pool of Bethesda was uncovered in 1964 by archaeology. Okay, and the reason it's so important is because in John chapter 5, he says that there's a five-porch design or like five different roof design um, over the pool of Bethesda. And that's a really weird thing. Okay, there's like there's not like like five different roofs. Like what does that mean? How does that fit? That's kind of a weird thing, John. Why would you say that? And we haven't ever discovered anything that's like five porches and it goes against the designs of the culture of the time, right? Does that make sense? Like this isn't a normal thing. And so in 1964, when they found the Pool of Bethesda and they found the five different porches, it was a huge deal. And even the non-believing critics of the Bible are quoted saying, this proves that John is factually accurate. Because they have no other thing that they can say. Because it is. They, they discover that John, what John's saying is true. And that's a, that's a huge, huge, huge deal. It shows uh, John's accuracy with details, with places, and it proves that he was there at that time. Okay, which is also important because some people will say, not as much with the book of John, especially now, but they may say, well, this book was written in the you know uh, fifth century or sixth century. It really wasn't written by John back then. It was written in the fifth century. And they'll try and say that to make it, you know, not credited or whatever. They can't say that now because of all the documents we have. But they'll say that with certain things. So when something like this comes up, it's like, no, he was there. Like, he described it the way it was back then. So it's really important. Another thing, it seems like a small thing, but stone jars. Okay, in John chapter 2, verse 6, it says that the... You remember when Jesus turns the water into wine? Yeah, so he, John, he, he mentions those stone jars. And um, it seems like, oh, that's not a big deal we, that we found these stone... We haven't found these stone jars. We don't know if like, we found these stone jars or whatever. But the important thing is we found stone jars that match what... You know he's talking about and the reason that that's important because that along with a bunch of other things that we found shows that John is accurate with customs and cultures okay like he's accurate with the the current time that he's in and that's important when you're talking about old uh, documents okay uh, so we found stuff like this all the time we find stuff like this we I don't find it you know people find it archaeologists find it not me but they find stuff like this all the time okay and then the third thing is location and geography okay so sometimes archaeology discovers this sometimes it's more of uh, uh, just his, his historians I guess that would find it but places like the Kidron Valley like if John describes it which he does 
He'll describe it in a certain way. And so if we go and we can find that place, geography-wise, that proves that he's accurate within his ge uh, geography. Uh, and you can see that he was actually in the places that he said he was in. Okay, so that's important. Well, Kidron Valley is one place that John mentions that we found. And he mentions uh, the, the cut or the valley of it. And so he describes it a little bit. And we can, we can see where he's talking about in the Kidron Valley, which is really cool. Um, so this, that's important too. So John is super accurate textually. Okay, so like if you look at the text, it's super accurate. If you look at the archaeology, he's super accurate. He's, he's very accurate on both those things. And so I would say that he, along with the rest of the New Testament, is the most accurate historical book in the, in the Bible. Okay? And guys like, um, I can't remember the, guy, the name that wrote the case for Christ. Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel, guys like him, he set out to disprove the Bible by evidence and facts. And when he gets in there and he digs into it, it's like he can't. And, and it caused him to believe because he's like, this is the most accurate thing I've ever, I've ever come across. And so it's really important to know that. Um, I think it helps us uh, study to be approved by God. Okay, I hope it, hel it helps us study. It also helps us be ready to give a defense when people come at us and say, no, this is inaccurate. The, the scripture is inaccurate. You can't trust it. Okay, we can come back and say, no, you know, I know. I know that the, the evidence is that we have these manuscripts. The evidence is that we have this archaeology. The evidence all backs it up. Okay, no one in their right mind can say that Jesus didn't exist. Okay, you can, you can say, I don't believe that he is the Messiah, but you cannot say he did not exist. And you cannot say that these uh, writers of the New Testament didn't write these things that we have today. Like, you can't. Okay, you can, you can say, I don't believe in Jesus, for eternal life, but you can't say you didn't live, and you can't say that these, these guys are inaccurate in their writings. You just can't. Not according to what we judge all of history on. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's important to know as we go through the book of John. So let's zoom in a little bit. Look at the book of John. We're going to look at some themes now. Okay, Brent's going to love this because he's a numbers guy. So we're going to go through some numbers. Uh, some of you guys might like numbers too. Some of you guys who don't like numbers, I'm sorry. You just have to live through the numbers section. Uh, but we're going to look at some different themes uh, and some overarching things, and then we'll get into the purpose. So all of you guys know this. We've, we've looked at this a whole lot, right? Uh, these are the four Gospels. The first three are called the Synoptic Gospels. Okay, The Synoptic Gospels are, all have the same flow. Okay, That's, They're all synonymous. Okay, John doesn't. John's the fourth Gospel, and it, it doesn't have the same flow. And we're going to look at the, the outlines and the themes and stuff. But Matthew, he shows Jesus as a king, and then Mark is a servant, Luke is a human or the man, and then Jesus, uh, John shows Jesus as God. Okay, we all know this because we hear it all the time. Okay, but that fourth one is a little different, okay, because it's not the synoptic gospel. It doesn't follow the same flow. Okay, and uh, we're going to look at some outlines real quick, but before we do, there's not like outlines, it's, there's not like a, an outline. Like this is the outline that God gave us. Okay, outlines are designed to help us organize in our mind what like the flow is of something. Does that make sense to you guys? So like when I'm doing, when I'm teaching, like I write an outline to help me keep my flow and help me to remember what's going on. And so as we look at outlines for John, I have three different ones, but there you could have a bunch more. You can make up your own outline to help organize the thoughts in your mind of hey, here's um, here's what's going on in John and. I actually encourage you guys to do that anytime you're studying a book. Just put the outline down. Okay, but here's a couple simple ones. Okay, this first one on the left there, that's, um, that's one by Bob Wilkin. 
And it's, uh, it's an outline for the signs. Okay, there are seven signs we'll look at in a little bit. There's actually eight, the, there's seven signs or eight signs in John. And so he calls it the prologue, then the eyewitness accounts, then the five major signs, then the two major signs, the final sign and the conclusion. So that's his like flow of outline to help him remember, okay, this is the flow here, this is how, this is how it fits. Uh, that middle one is one that JV talks about all the time, uh, prologue, the signs. So he lumps all the signs into one big group. Then the upper room or like the, when he's with his 12 disciples and then the crucifixion and then the conclusion. Okay, and then the, the far one is just like a very simple three line. If you're like, I can't remember five things. I'm gonna remember three things. Uh, this is who I am and uh, the instruction and then the climax. So the who I am, that's including most of the signs. It's Jesus saying, here's who I am. That also includes like John the Baptist when he says, here's who Christ is. So it's all about who is Christ. It's almost like he's proving who he is. He's the Messiah. Then the instruction, after he's gone through and shown all that stuff, he gives instruction to his 12, right? And then the climax, 18 through 21, is what? You know, the climax of the whole book. It's the crucifixion, the resurrection, and all that. So those are just, just some different outlines to kind of give you an idea of what John's talking about. Um, as we'll see in a second, his whole goal is to show us signs so we believe who Jesus is. Okay, and we'll, we'll look at that in a second. But those are some outlines for you guys um, to think about. All right. So here we get into the numbers, okay? There's a lot of themes, okay? There's a lot of themes, and there's a lot of uh, cool stuff in the book of John, like uh, different words and stuff we'll look at. But a big theme is signs, okay? He has signs in his purpose or in his thesis statement, and there are eight main signs, okay? Everybody will say seven signs because there's seven signs and seven I am statements. Uh, they don't count the resurrection. But these are the seven signs that we see in the book of John. Okay, the first one is water into wine. That's in Cana. Okay, you guys know that story, uh, and we'll look at it soon. But Jesus' mother's like, hey, we're at this wedding, they ran out of wine. And Jesus is like, you know, what does that have to do with me? I don't want to, you know, whatever. And he's like, all right, servants go fill it with water, and the water's miraculously turned into wine. The healing of the boy, this is a long-distance healing, uh, so it's really important. The healing of the Bethesda, um, also important, and uh, we'll look at it later. But it's important because this guy is at this pool, and there's this, you know, this idea or this thought that, the angel's going to stir the water and heal people, and Jesus comes in and, and he heals them on the spot. So it's really cool. The feeding of the 5,000, of course, everybody knows that, and the walking on the water. Those are two very popular ones. The healing of the man born blind super important because the guy's born blind, and there's witnesses that he's born blind. So he's been blind since birth, yet Jesus heals him. This is really important because um, you can't fake being born blind, right? He's been born for, or he's 40 years old or whatever, and so... Uh, it's a, that's a very important one. The raising of Lazarus, obviously a huge one. All of you guys know that one. And then the resurrection of himself. Okay, the resurrection of himself. So those are the eight signs that we see in John. Um, and so even if you wanted to like outline the book like this, you know, you could. This is the flow of the eight signs of John. You know what I mean? Um, but these are important things to remember. And we're going to go through each of them uh, when we get to those points. There's also... Uh, these expressions called uh, they're called I am statements. Okay, I am J statements, and I'm not gonna give like Greek lessons or anything, but we have to talk about it a little bit because it's really important. Okay, and we'll see it when we go through a bit. The statement that we see in John a lot is ego e me. Okay, like ego waffles and e me. Okay, e me. Okay, that's a verb. Okay, everybody raise your hand if you know what a verb is. Okay, all right. So it's a to be verb. Okay, it means am, like, right, I am, whatever. Okay, but in Greek, 
Okay, they have each word or each verb, okay, has a voice, tense, mood, number, and then if it's plural or singular. Okay, so each word, each verb can be translated based on that. So imi is first person singular. So that would be translated I am, right? First person singular is I, right? So imi is translated I am. That's how you translate imi. The word ego is just the word I. So why would you put I, I am? Anybody have a guess? Yeah, so yeah, so the subject can be in the verb. You're exactly right. So you don't even need ego. Because ego is a subject, but you don't need a subject because in Greek, emi already has a subject in there, just like what she said. Right? Emi is the subject and the verb. It says I am. So why do you put another I? Because it's emphasis in Greek. So he's saying, I am. Okay, so it's really important because we see John the Baptist say it and Jesus say it a lot. John says it once, but John says, I, ego me, am not. And he puts emphasis on, I am not the one. I am not the Messiah. Jesus says, I am. And then he has all these statements as well as other places like John 8, 58, where he says, before Abraham was, ego me, I am. Okay, and this, uh, these are all ego me statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and life. So there are these, these theme, or this theme of I am. This theme, expression, if you will, of I am. And the reason that is, is because, and we'll, we'll see in a second, but John is writing so that we see who Jesus is so that we believe in Him for eternal life. That is His purpose. And so He's showing who Jesus is, and He's showing that Jesus told us who He was the whole time, throughout His whole ministry. It's really cool. Um, so that's, that's the ego in me um, expressions. There's also other expressions in John. Um, he likes to contrast very distinctly. So we'll see like light and darkness, death and life, um, night and day. Like He's very uh, contrasty in what He says. He also has these statements that, like, they're belief statements. We'll, we'll look at some key words in a second, which uh, believe is one of them. Uh, but he has these belief statements, um, believe in me, believe in my Father, like and some statements like that that are kind of expressions, which we'll look at those as we go through them. <clears throat> so those are kind of the expressions, uh, the, seven, uh, the seven signs. We're also going to look at key words, okay? And so as we look at these keywords, I want you to think about any book or anything that uh, you read. If you want to know what someone's trying to say, just start counting words. Okay? Now, you're not going to count the these or the ands, the conjunctions and stuff like that. But if you start counting words, you're going to see very quickly what the author's point is. Does that make sense? Because those words that he's trying to get across are going to come through. And you're going to say, okay, I understand what his point is. And we're going to look at uh, several key words. The first two we're going to see are in his thesis statement later on. Okay, because they're key words for a reason. Okay, here's the key words. Okay, that first one, uh, pisteo, or pisteo is believe. Okay, and it's used 98 times um, in Scripture. And all the other Gospels, it's used 37 times. But in John, it's used 98 times. Now, obviously... Not every time believe is used is believe in Jesus for eternal life, right? But the fact that it's used that many times just means that that's a theme. Believe is a theme. The root word there is actually used 101 times 
in John, and it's 88 times in the other Gospels, but in all the other Gospels, it's mostly this word called pistis, which is faith. So John uses believe a lot, and the other Gospels use uh, faith a lot. Um, so that's the difference there. That next word, uh, zoe, okay, it's life. Actually, the next three ones are life. Okay, zoe, and then it's almost the same word, zoe, but it's Z-O-A is the verb to live. And then psyche, those are all life. Okay, they're different words for life. And so life is used a ton in John. The root word, uh, zoe, is used 56 times in John. Okay, and it's used 37 times in all the rest of the Gospels combined. Okay, so life is used 56 times in John compared to 37 in all the other ones combined. That's a lot. Okay, light. Okay, that next one is light, phos. Okay, it's used 24 times in John, and it's used 23 in all the other Gospels combined. Okay, and those other two, the adjective, aminos, is just eternal. And the noun, patar, means father. Uh, eternal is used 17 times in John, father, 35. So those are, those are all themes. Those first two are the two that I would say are the theme of John, believe and life. Okay, because they're used in contrast to the other Gospels so much more. Okay, um, I told you if you're a numbers guy, you're going to like this. Okay, but if you're not, I'm sorry. Uh, so what about words that are not used? <clears throat> All right, all these words, I put all the Greek words up here so you'd have to listen to me, and you're going to just read the slide. Uh, but those first two mean repent. It's metaneo. It's repent and repentance. Neither one is used in John at all. Okay, and as far as the other uh, Old Testament, or sorry, Old Testament, as far as the other Gospels, uh, they're used 16 times in all the other Gospels. Most of them are in Luke. Okay, so repentance really isn't a huge theme in any of the Gospels, but a lot more so um, in the other Gospels, especially Luke than John. All those other words are different variants for obey. Okay, They all mean obey. None of them are used at all. And those words are used ten times in the other Gospels. So obey, repentance, neither one are themes in John, obviously, because he doesn't mention them. There's another word for obey, uh, and I think it's used like one or two times in John. Um, another, another Greek word, because there's multiple words that mean obey, obviously. So, But neither one of these words, repent or obey, I think are can be said that they're a, a, like a... A keyword or anything because they're they're never used in John. So remember, as far as keywords go, believe and life. Those are the two that we want to recognize as keywords in the book of John. Make sense? <coughs> Feel you all falling asleep except Brent. His eyes are lighting up. So I'm just kidding. All right, the final one. Okay, and then we're done. Okay, the purpose, and this is this is important. Okay, because all of this leads to okay, why is John writing this? We've looked at all these themes. Why is John writing this? Okay, and this is important for you guys. Okay, because we're going to be in the book of John for a really, really, really long time. Okay, it's going to take us a really long time to get through the book of John. And as we're going through this, you guys need to remember this throughout the whole thing. Because when we go through and we look at the purposes and the themes and things like that, that's going to help us in our mind put together what's going on throughout the entire book. Because there's a week of time in between every single time that we meet, right? Mm -hmm. And we barely remember what we talked about last week, right? Mm -hmm. So if we can remember some of these themes, keys, and purposes... Then in you know week 20, when we're in John chapter 12, it's like, oh yeah, his, his purpose is this. So that means that he's doing this for that purpose. And it's easier to, to remember and study and, and understand the Scripture. Does that make sense? All right, so what's the purpose? A lot of uh, Scripture or uh, books of the Bible, it's like you kind of got to dig to find the purpose of why the writer wrote. It's like, okay, what's his purpose? Let's find his context. Let's find who he's writing to. Let's try and figure out why he wrote. John's not the way. It's super easy. 
Okay, if you still have your Bibles open to John 20, 30, and 31, let's look at it. Okay, because he literally has a thesis statement. John's thesis statement is not at the start of his book, it's at the end of his book, uh, which is kind of cool because you got to remember he's trying to show us who Jesus is, right? That's why we're calling our series Who I Am. Uh, he's trying to show us who Jesus is. So he doesn't just come out and say, hey, here's why I'm writing you. Now let me show you who Jesus is. He shows us who Jesus is for a long time and then says, ah, now this is why I wrote. I showed you who he is. This is why I'm writing. So it's really cool the way he did it. Okay, this is John 20, 30, and 31. It says, therefore, many other signs. Okay, we just looked and said, hey, there's seven signs or eight signs. So John says, here's eight signs, but there's a bunch more that he did that I'm not telling you about. These are the eight that I'm shown giving you. Okay, that he performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. I didn't write all the signs. I wrote eight of them. Okay, but these ones I wrote to you, or I've written to you, that you may believe, there's one of our key words, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, there's another same key word, you may have life in his name. Okay, life in his name, another key word, right? So in his thesis statement, he says the number one keyword twice and the number two keyword once. In his thesis statement, it's very important we understand that why or we understand why he is writing this book. Okay, and the thesis is believe for life. Okay, believe for life. His goal of his book, John, John's writing this down. His goal when he's writing this down is to say, I want people to see these eight signs. Okay, I want them to see who Jesus is, to know that he's the Messiah. So they will believe in him for eternal life. That's why he's writing this book, which is really cool. And so some of us might say, well, I may as well not read John because I already believe. Right? Uh, but I think it's really important to read and study the book of John because if we can explain and accurately handle the gospel the way that John does, we'll be a lot better at sharing our faith, at defending our faith, um, because he does such a good job of it. Um, and we also get to see who Jesus was, and we get to see his life and what he does. And there's a lot more other stuff in there, too, uh, that we'll see. So, so why is this important? Okay, Why does it matter? Um, what should we do with this information? Because today is like a lecture, right? It's like a bunch of information that is really boring for the most part. And does it even matter? Like, does any of this matter at all? And it seems like no. It seems like the answer is no. None of this really does matter because I already believe, so it doesn't really matter. But it's not true. It does, it does matter. <clears throat> Excuse me. It does matter. Number one, it matters uh, because we need to know and have confidence in the accuracy of the Scripture, and we need to be able to defend it. Okay, I was just talking to Evan about you know somebody that he knows uh, that was Mormon too, and they don't believe in the Scripture. Um, and I just came across somebody that didn't believe in the Scripture. Like, and I came across somebody... It was quite a while ago, but I was sharing the gospel. I was like street witnessing or whatever, and he, he believed in some of the Bible, but not all the Bible. You know, and so we come across all these people that don't believe the Scripture. Okay, yeah, there's most, most evangelicals might say they believe it, but then they, they'll say, well, not that part. Well, not that part. And so it's very important that we understand and have confidence in how accurate the Scripture is, not only just because I believe it's accurate, because God's given us the evidence that we can go back and look at and say, this is the most accurate book we have. And then be able to defend it uh, when people start talking about it. Um, so they say, you know, well, the Bible's full of variance. Okay, what are you going to say when somebody says that? Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Maybe I should, maybe it's not. You know what I mean? What are you going to say when somebody says that? Because they're, they're, especially when you get into college, that's what they're going to say if you're sharing your faith at all. If you're not, 
you don't have to worry about it, but you should be. So uh, what are you going to say? What are you going to say when they say, well, you know, I don't believe in the Bible. I don't, it just can't be accurate. It's so long ago. We don't have any of the stuff that is actually written down. What are you going to say? Like, you should be able to defend that. Okay, because God has given us the evidence that we have, and He's given us the ability to be able to go back and look at this stuff, we should be able to defend it. Okay, it's also important because we need to remember uh, these things about John, John in general so we can uh, dig into the book of John better. Okay, if we know these things, if we, if we can get a correct flow in our mind, understand key words, understand his thesis, understand what he's trying to get at, that's going to help us study the word better. Does that make sense? So if you actually want to dig in and study the book of John, and you actually want to get something out of this, this, this next, who knows, five-year study. Hopefully it's not that long. But if you want to get something out of this next uh, study as we go through the book of John in Sunday mornings, then you need to really look at this stuff and remember this stuff and put it together. Okay? If you don't want to get anything out of it, that's fine. You don't have to remember any of this. Okay? Um, and then if you, the third thing is if you haven't believed in Jesus for eternal life, do it. Okay, that's the whole reason this book was written. That's John's whole purpose. I know most of you, and I know most of you have. Um, but then, also, if you have, this, we should let this or allow this to help us be able to explain the gospel better. Because John is explaining the gospel really well throughout this whole book. And it's his goal and his purpose. And so if we can remember these things, we can use his material right, to help us share the gospel even better. Okay, so it all boils down to 2 Timothy 2.15. Okay, use the knowledge that we gain to accurately handle the word of truth. Okay, we want to accurately handle, correctly divide God's word. Okay, and we're about ready to get into the book of John. So if we want to correctly divide the book of John and accurately handle it, we need to understand the themes, the purposes. We need to understand that it's true and the evidence behind it. We need to understand all that because it's going to help us accurately handle the word of God. Does that make sense to everybody? Thanks for joining us for True to the Bible podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this lesson. If you have any questions about this lesson or any of the other True to the Bible podcasts, don't hesitate to contact us at hunter.davis at stillwaterbible.org. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope that you join us for our next lesson.